Hey, good morning, River West. Great to see you today. Great to see you. The first thing I'm going to do here as you get settled is I'm going to circle back and give you an update on the pastor that we prayed for last Sunday from Myanmar. You might remember this, Pastor Foza. Uh, I'll get that right. Pastor Foza. This is the pastor who is friends with Nopum, who got in trouble in his community for having a worship service in his home. He was reported to the authorities, and we found out about this last weekend, and he had to report on Monday morning. And we got an update from Foza, Pastor Foza, and I, this is the only time I will read from my phone ever on a Sunday, okay? Here's what Pastor Foza said. He said, thank God that I have been delivered in the battle. How great is that? Here, yeah. He said, this is deep. He said, I thank God because except for a battle, I would never know the experience of being delivered. Here's what else he said. Okay. Keep on reading. Okay. Then he said, the whole community came out. His whole church came out. All of the villagers came out. All of the elders, all of the Buddhist leaders who, are, who have animosity towards Christianity, who are making accusations, everyone's there. And Foza had to give a reason for why they worship Jesus. Wow. So he got back to his church and one of his church members said, and I quote, he said, you did not go there to defend yourself. You went there to share the gospel. How cool is that? So Red Nopum said, word about this has spread throughout the whole region. Everyone's talking about it. Now, what's going to happen is that this local authority is now going to go up a level and report what has happened. So we still have some praying to do. All right, River West, we're going to pray for Foza. Keep the prayers coming. But this brother is super encouraged. And I want you to know that Nopum was so encouraged. Thank you for making Nopum feel welcome last Sunday. He was so encouraged. I have to tell you a story. We, uh, the elders had dinner with Nopum on Wednesday night and, um, and the, the, the guys on that leadership team were asking him, how can we pray for you? We wanna pray for you. And he shared a bunch of stuff. And then we just, it was just, it was just brothers in Christ praying. We prayed together. Nopum prayed at the end. And when he said, amen, we all looked up and he had tears streaming down his face. And here's what he said. I'll never forget this. He said, most of the time I feel totally alone. But when I come here, I'm reminded that I'm not alone. Isn't that great? I looked around the room. We were all crying. We were like, oh, that was amazing. You know, he was so encouraged. He was encouraged by you. I know you were encouraged by him, weren't you? Praise God. So keep praying for Nopum. Thank you for all you do, River West. And now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm so sorry. Welcome to River West. You know, go in, listen to the podcast. It's all there last Sunday. But what we're going to do now is we're going to do what we always do. Will you open your Bible, please? Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and an usher will come. And we're going to go back to this study that we're in, in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke until Jesus returns, I believe. But we're going to keep going. So when you get that Bible open, open to Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Luke 10. A parable is a story that only yields its deepest meaning to the person who actually wants it. That's how parables work. 
If that sentence sounds familiar, it's because we learned that last spring. A parable is a story that only reveals its deepest meaning, the actual gem, the truth that you need. It only reveals that truth to the person who's a genuine seeker, who wants to know it. That's the way parables function. Parables are not like our modern day sermon illustration. We pastors, we get up here and we use illustrations and we're trying to make truth easy to grasp. We're trying to take concepts that are abstract and difficult and bring them down to concrete so that you can understand them. And let me tell you something, we pastors, we, we freak out about this, all right? We worry about our illustrations. We pray about them. We geek out about them. We want them to be helpful. We want them to be winsome. We want to be as witty as C.S. Lewis. We want to be as funny as Jim Gaffigan. We just want to grab your heart, right? And why? Because we want you to walk out going, I get it. I get the truth. But Jesus, when he spoke in parables, almost appeared to be doing just the opposite. A parable is a story in which a gem, a truth, is hiding right beneath the surface. It's there, but it invites the hearer to say, I'm not going to get that truth unless I really engage right now with an open mind and a humble heart. So you could actually, in one sense, you could say parables both reveal truth and conceal truth. They conceal it from the person who perhaps in their arrogance thinks, I have nothing to learn from this. I don't need Jesus. I don't need, and they, and they go, I, I get it. Yeah, move on. The, from that person, the truth will be concealed. But the truth will be revealed to the person who in humility says, I know there's something in here and I need it. I need it. And the difference, of course, boils down to the condition of my heart. This is why Jesus spoke in parables. Because he cares about your heart. He wants to draw out your heart. He wants you to engage. And today in our study in Luke, we come to what is arguably the most famous parable that Jesus ever spoke. The most famous, and I'm going to argue the most misunderstood, the most misinterpreted. The gem is under there. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you heard of it? Even if you, even if you don't grow up in the church, you, we name hospitals after this parable, all right? Okay, it's the famous parable about the Samaritan who walks down a road and two others have already walked past a man who's been robbed and beaten and left half dead. And the Samaritan is the one who stops and helps. So we have Good Samaritan Hospital and we have ministries that we've named after it. And we use it as a compliment for one another. You're such a good Samaritan. Oh, thank you. That means that I'm generous and kind, right? That's how we use the phrase good Samaritan. But wait a minute. Have we actually gotten the gem out of this parable? Did you know that Jesus never uses the word good to describe the Samaritan? So the fact that we call it the parable of the good Samaritan may be an indicator that we've actually missed the point. And so we're going to do what we always do here at River West. We're going to slow down. We're going to get into the story. We're going to see the context. We're going to take our time. 
Will you look with me now? Luke 10, verse 25. Here's what happened. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I added a little attitude there just because I think that, I added a little teenager because I'm like, that's probably how he said it. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. And so begins the parable. Okay, but so the first thing I want, you have to see is that this passage is not first a story about a Samaritan who crosses the road to help someone in a ditch. This passage is first a story about a lawyer who comes to Jesus to justify himself. It's a story about a man who comes and says, I want a guarantee of eternal life, but I don't want to have to deal with God. I don't want to come to God with an open heart and a humble mind. And the parable is Jesus' response to that man. That's the purpose of the parable. So a couple things here that you have to see. I want you to notice the context. First, number one, pay attention to the heart of the lawyer. Did you notice his heart? Because I guarantee you Jesus did. (laughs) Did you notice the condition of his heart? He wasn't sincere. He wasn't a genuine seeker. Oh, he stood up. That was a sign of honor. The teacher would sit and a student would stand, but his motives were not pure. He didn't come to learn from Jesus. He came to test Jesus. He did not come to seek truth, he came to justify himself before God. And so his questions were not inquisitive. This was an interrogation, right? There's a difference. Have you ever been in that situation? Someone's asking you questions and you begin to realize, I'm being interrogated. (laughs) It happens, okay? So pay attention, the condition of his heart. But here's the second thing. Pay attention to the method of Jesus. And Jesus does this all the time. Did you notice this? Jesus always keeps turning the tables with more questions. He never answers answers anything directly. He'll often, especially if you can tell the motives are wrong, he'll turn it back around. And I bet it was maddening for people, okay? It's like that. It reminds me of that game where you can never answer a question with an answer. You always have to answer it with another question. You know that game? My girls play that. It's like, why did Jesus always ask answer questions with another question. Why wouldn't Jesus always answer with another question? 
Why do I want to choke you? I don't know. But that's what Jesus did. He was just turning. This was his method. He would turn the tables. So a lawyer stands up in front of Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And let me tell you something. That is a great, that's an important question. That might be the most important question that a person would ever ask in their life. If it's asked with the right heart. Now, in a moment, I'll show you the problem with the way he asks the question. But he stands and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? He turns the tables. He goes, you're the lawyer, right? The lawyer here is not lawyer in like our civil law sense. This would be an expert in the Old Testament law. Jesus says, you're the expert in the Old Testament law. What does the law say? How do you read it? He asks a question. Jesus takes it back inside. He turns it, he turns it around and he goes internal. That's what questions do. A question comes back in and suddenly I, I have to look at my own heart and answer the question myself. And that's the position the lawyer found himself in. And you know what was amazing? He was a really good lawyer. He answered perfectly. We look at it, verse 27. He, he combines two verses from the Old Testament that perfectly summarize the entire Old Testament law. He combines a, a verse from Deuteronomy 6 that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And then he pairs that with a verse from Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbors yourself. And, the, and Jesus actually taught that same thing many times. He took those two verses, he put them together, and he said, this is the summation of the entire Old Testament law. And now this lawyer answers perfectly at a surface level, at a head level, at an information level, the answer is correct. And so Jesus says, you're right. You see that? Verse 28, he goes, you've answered correctly. Do this, do this, and you will live. And the reader's going, Jesus, whoa, why are you saying that to him? Should, that's not the gospel. Do this. Wait a minute, Jesus. Shouldn't you be saying, believe in me? Believe in me and you will live? Isn't that, why, why would you say, do this and you will live? And the reason is because this Guy's heart, he's not ready for the gospel. He's not ready. Jesus has to get a little deeper, get a little deeper. So let me show you how this should have gone down, okay? This can be helpful. What should have happened was the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer says, I know the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and he should have started weeping and said, I've never done that for one second of one day completely in my entire life. That's, that's, what, that's what he should have done. But instead, he goes, check, and who's my neighbor? <laughs> okay. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Check. Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. This guy said that and thought, done. Now let's have a debate about who my neighbor is. 
And Jesus says, I need to minister to this guy. I need to minister to this guy. Did you notice the phrase justify himself? We look at it a little more closely. Look at verse 29. That is an interesting phrase. Here's the thing. We don't use that language very much. Justify, justification. So what does that mean? What does it mean to justify yourself? Or what, how would you decide to define self-justification? Because really this is the key. This is, and you're going to have to get this to understand the, the way Jesus uses the parable. What is self Justification. Here's the definition. It means creating a case for your own right standing with God without actually going and asking God about it. I'm, I'm creating my case. Here's why, God, I'm right with you. The lawyer was actually using religion to hide from God. Amazing. Isn't that amazing? You say, wait a minute, we use religion to find God. But actually, you know what? You can actually use religion to hide from God. Because you can turn religion into a bunch of rules and check, check, I do this, I do this. And then you lift it up. Okay, God, you have to, I'm good. And, and we move on. And many of us grow up in traditions or come from other faith systems where there's legalism. And we've been imprinted with that way of relating with God so much that, that we, it's just natural. We just, that's, we don't know how else to relate to God. And this lawyer, this is where he was. Bottom line, self-justification is the opposite of grace. Because if I can justify myself, I don't need God in his grace to justify me. Amazing. So let me illustrate this for you. I remember when I was a young father, my girls were young. I have two girls, Lauren and Lauren was born in 2000. Bridget was born in 2013. They're the loves of my life and amazing. And I remember... We, I remember one time I was sitting in the living room and I was reading and Lauren was sitting on the ground and she had just learned to sit up and she was reading, reading little books. She couldn't read. The books were upside down. It was adorable. It was awesome. And I remember sitting there looking at her and I remember realizing I love her so much that I feel like I'm going to split open right now. I was like... And so I started this game with Lauren where she was not reading. She was fake reading, all right? And I was like, Lauren, Lauren. And then she looked up and I was like, I love you. And then she's like, and she went back to her book. And I, and I, I, so I did it again, Lauren, Lauren. And then she looked up, I love you. And then she figured it out. So then she tried to play the game. So then I was like, Lauren, and she wouldn't look. She had the book upside down and she wouldn't look. Lauren, Lauren. And then she looked up, I love you, okay? Now, what if it was the opposite? What if Lauren had to come every day with a list of all the reasons why I ought to love her and bring that to me every day? How messed up would that be? And some of you are thinking, you just described my childhood. You just described my childhood. And so sometimes we're imprinted with this 
need to perform because suddenly we come to a the one relationship in the universe where I never have to bring a list because there is God in heaven. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. God is in heaven just saying, I love you. I love you. And here's the lawyer. And he comes. Why does he come? To he comes with a list. And Jesus knows. I need to crush. I need to break through that. Do you realize the parable that Jesus is about to share is a response to this man trying to justify himself? Jesus wants to crush that. Not in a negative, hateful way, in love. He wants to free him from that prison. Now we're ready to understand the parable. Will you look at it with me? Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And at this point, everyone hearing the parable is like, yes, the priest will take care of things. This is the ultimate good guy the ultimate insider. And what happens? And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came and saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. Now the Levite the Levite was like, they were like the worship leaders, all right? This is Pastor Colin walking, walking on the other side of the road, okay? This is like the, the Levites were the, the people who led worship. They, they ran the worship services. This is the second ultimate insider. Priest, Levite, insiders, good guys, what do they do? They walk by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, verse, can't see it there. What is it? Help me. 33, thank you. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And the Samaritan is hated. The moment Jesus said the word Samaritan, the lawyer and everyone else who was hearing it went, ah, there was racial tension, there was prejudice, there was hate, there was spiritual division. The Samaritan is the ultimate outsider. And what does the Samaritan do? He crosses the road. And he has compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In other words, extravagance, extravagant generosity. He spent a ton of money. He, this cost him time. This cost him his heart. This was ultimate generosity, ultimate compassion, ultimate love. And then the very next verse, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay, fantastic, 
fantastic storytelling. Here's the thing. You read it at the surface. You go, okay, the point of the story is to go out of my way to help people who are in need. It's a moral story, an example story. I'm supposed to follow the example and do everything I can to help people who have needs. Is that a good thing to do? Is that biblical? Absolutely. Is that the gem under the surface of this parable? Not exactly. Or the more sophisticated reader says, this is a story about racial prejudice. Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other. It's a, it's a story about crossing those boundaries. Is that good? Is that biblical? Absolutely. Is that the full depth of the meaning of the parable? Not totally. When you hear a parable, this is human nature, when you hear a parable, you're immediately thinking, who, do I, who am I supposed to relate to in this story? So you're hearing it, the lawyer's hearing it, and first he hears of the priest, and he's like, I mean, I'm pretty amazing. But the priest walks by on the other side of the road, so he's like, that's okay, that's not me. And I'm not the Levite, because he does the same. And then the lawyer was thinking, I know who's coming next. It's the it's just the lay person. It's the, it's the everyday Israelite. There was a phrase that they used, priests, Levites, and all the people. That's how they summarized the nation of Israel. So this lawyer was thinking, here's what's coming next. Priest, Levite, it's, it's just your average Israelite. He's the hero. That's who I'm going to relate to. Yes, he'll show up and save the day. And suddenly Jesus throws a curveball and he says, a Samaritan walked down the road. And the lawyer goes, wait a minute. I'm not the Samaritan. So he goes, I'm not the priest. I'm not the Levite. I'm not the Samaritan. <gasps> Wait a minute. I'm the half dead guy on the side of the road who's totally helpless. And Jesus drives a knife through self-righteousness. He says, if you're going to get the meaning of the parable, you have to realize you're the guy who's dead on the side of the road. So I titled my sermon, Lessons from the Side of the Road. And that could be a good subtitle, right? Lessons from the Side of the Road. And now, so that helps you understand this odd statement that Jesus makes when he finishes the parable. It's very clunky. Did you notice it? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? It's so, Jesus takes the original question and he, and he reframes it really oddly. Scholars have even wondered, they've tried to smooth this out in some translations, but this is how it's written. The, the lawyer said, who is my neighbor? In that sentence, the neighbor is the object and the lawyer gets to be the subject who's in a position of benevolence and power. He gets to bequeath all the gifts of his goodness onto this man. And Jesus flips the whole thing around and says, who proved to be the neighbor to the man on the side of the road? And you're saying, Pastor, you spent way too much time alone this week. Okay, is that, that, no, this is what's happening. Think about this. As long as the lawyer gets to still be the subject of the sentence, he stays in a place of self-righteousness 
and autonomy and control. But the moment Jesus flips it around and says, you're actually the dead person on the side of the road. And the neighbor is the hated Samaritan that you don't, you can't stand. And he shows up to save your life. Now the lawyer is forced to realize I'm helpless. I'm helpless. And Jesus says, don't you realize if you don't go there, if you don't get to that place, I'm helpless. That's the, that's the only way to have a relationship with God. I can't have a relationship with God if I keep telling God why I'm in control, why I can, I've got this, I've got this, even though I've been programmed to do that in my life. In order to get the meaning, in order to get all the lessons, I have to realize I'm dead, I'm helpless, I'm desperate on the side of the road. So what are the lessons from the side of the road? I'm gonna give you two practical things I want you to think about this week. This parable can do immense work in your life, but you, this won't happen easily. You'll need to write these down and take them with you. I'm only gonna give you two, but there's probably many, all right? Lesson number one is about the deeply rooted nature of prejudice in the human heart. Although the parable isn't only about racial prejudice, that is a theme and this parable can do powerful work in your life to root out deep stuff. And, and we all have it. And it's a good thing to sometimes have it rooted out because God loves us. Did you notice when, when, the, when the lawyer responds to Jesus' question at the, in the very last verse, verse 37, he can't even say the word Samaritan. Jesus is like, who proved to be the neighbor? And he's like, the guy who showed mercy. He can't even say the word. That's how deeply rooted the prejudice is. And so the parable can have a powerful effect in your life. Here's how you do it. Take the word Samaritan out of the phrase because we don't even relate to that anymore and just insert someone that you suspect you have prejudice towards. Imagine, there you are. You're laying on the side of the road. You're helpless and you're hoping someone will come, someone that you know, someone you love. And then here comes that one person from that one group. You're like, are you kidding me? And put that word into the title, right? The parable of the good Democrat or the parable of the good Republican. I don't know where you are, okay? The parable of the good capitalist or the parable of the good socialist. I mean, it could be anything. Take something, take a, take a people group, take an idea and that, that you know, oh, that's the person that shows up, put it in there. And then say, God, you need to root out some stuff in my heart. That's lesson number one. Here's lesson number two. Lesson number two is about the constant drift of the human heart towards self-justification. Constantly drifting. Because Think about this. River West, brothers and sisters, we 
grow up in a world that teaches us to perform for virtually everything that we get. Think about this. You perform to get the grades. You perform to get into college. You perform to make the team. You perform to get the lead in the play. You perform to get the guy. You perform to get the girl. You perform to get the job. You perform to get the raise. You perform, perform, perform. And then suddenly you come to a relationship in which your performance means nothing. And it's very disorienting. And the human heart is just prone. We, we don't even realize it, but we wander right back into it. It's like my daughter's. My daughter just sitting there, Lauren. Did she have to do anything? She could not read. Her book was upside down. There were no reasons for me to love her, all right? No reasons. I'm just kidding. Why did I love her? Because she's mine. The lawyer said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that question is nonsensical because you don't do anything to inherit things. You inherit because you are an heir, plain and simple. You don't have to do anything to inherit, inherit eternal life from God. God loves you. There he is, standing over you saying, I love you. I love you. Stop bringing your list. Stop bringing your list. I love you. I love you. I'm going to close with one story from the Gospels. Do you remember when Jesus stood up from the table and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he took a basin and he came to the disciples and he started, he, 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 he took the super low place and he started washing their feet. Do you remember what happened when he got to Peter? Remember this moment? Remember what Peter said? What did he say? He's like, no way. There's no way you're doing this. All right? Peter's like, there's absolutely no way you're touching my feet. No. You know, but he, here, and and what, did, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, don't you understand? If you don't let me do this, you can have no part with me. And what he meant by that was, Peter, don't you realize, if you're not willing to let me wash your feet, why will you ever be willing to let me wash your soul? Which I guarantee you is gonna humiliate me a lot more than touching your toes because I'm gonna walk down a road right now. I'm going to hang on a cross. People will spit in my face. I will bleed and suffer and die to wash you. Washing your feet is child's play. Will you let me wash your soul? And that's why every time we come to the table, we take that bread and that cup and we realize I'm on the side of the road. I'm desperate. I'm half dead. And that's why we have so much gratitude. Jesus, thank you for the cross. And we're going to do that this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? And I will invite the worship team.
to come. Lord, how we thank you, Father, for the wisdom of Jesus. He is perfect, perfectly loving, perfectly wise, authoritative, kind and true. We need every single parable that he spoke, sentence that he said. We need every one, Jesus. We thank you for them, including this parable. And so we pray over the next 10 minutes that you would cause the gem to sink in deep now, Lord. Help us see the true condition of our hearts today. Not just prejudice, yes, but ways where we have tried to justify ourselves, Lord. Show us so that we can let that go and receive grace today. I want to pray for those who have come who, who are new to the idea of faith, Christianity. If, if that's you, this is such a precious space for you. Perhaps God is touching your mind and your heart today in a special way and, you're, and, you're, and things are clicking for you. If that's true, we just praise God for that. Today could be a day where you take communion for the first time in faith. You put your hope in Christ. You pray and you say, Jesus, I believe. And so thank you, Lord, for how you're working right now in this place. We love you. And all these things we pray together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.